Section 35 of History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 3, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 3. Chaldean Civilization, Part 8. If we knew more of the internal history of the great Chaldean cities, we should no doubt come to see what an important part the servile element played in them, and could we trace it back for a few generations, we should probably discover that there were few great families who did not reckon a slave or freedman among their ancestors. It would be interesting to follow this people, made up of such complex elements, in all their daily work and recreation, as we are able to do in the case of contemporary Egyptians, but the monuments which might furnish us with the necessary materials are scarce, and the positive information to be gleaned from them amounts to but little. We are tolerably safe, however, in supposing the more wealthy cities to have been, as a whole, very similar in appearance to those existing at the present day, in the regions which as yet have been scarcely touched by the advent of European civilization. Sinuous, narrow, muddy streets, littered with domestic refuse and organic detritus, in which flocks of ravens and wandering packs of dogs perform with more or less efficiency the duties of sanitary officers, whole quarters of the town composed of huts made of reeds and puddled clay, low houses of crude brick, surmounted perhaps even in those times with the conical domes we find later on the Assyrian bas-reliefs, crowded and noisy bazaars, where each trade is located in its special lanes and blind alleys, silent and desolate spaces occupied by palaces and gardens, in which the private life of the wealthy was concealed from public gaze, and looking down upon this medley of individual dwellings, the palaces and temples with their ziggurats crowned with gilded and painted sanctuaries. In the ruins of Eru, Iridu, and Uruk, the remains of houses belonging doubtless to well-to-do families have been brought to light. They are built of fine bricks, whose courses are cemented together with a thin layer of bitumen, but they are lighted only internally by small apertures pierced at irregular distances in the upper part of the walls. The low-arched doorway, closed by a heavy two-leaved door, leads into a blind passage, which opens as a rule on the courtyard in the centre of the building. In the interior may still be distinguished the small oblong rooms, sometimes vaulted, sometimes roofed with a flat ceiling supported by trunks of palm trees. The walls are often of a considerable thickness, in which are found narrow niches here and there. The majority of the rooms were merely store chambers, and contained the family provisions and treasures. Others served as living-rooms, and were provided with furniture. The latter, in the houses of the richer citizens no less than in those of the people, was of a very simple kind, and was mostly composed of chairs and stools, similar to those in the royal palaces. The bedrooms contained the linen chests and the beds with their thin mattresses, coverings, and cushions, and perhaps wooden headrests resembling those found in Africa but the Chaldeans slept mostly on mats spread on the ground. An oven for baking occupied a corner of the courtyard, side by side with the stones for grinding the corn. The ashes on the hearth were always aglow, and if by chance the fire went out, the fire-stick was always at hand to relight it, as in Egypt. The kitchen utensils and household pottery comprised a few large copper pans and earthenware pots rounded at the base, dishes, water, and wine-jars, and heavy plates of courseware. Metal had not as yet superseded stone, and in the same house we meet with bronze axes and hammers side by side with the same implements in cut flint, 
besides knives, scrapers, and mace-heads. At the present day, the women of the country of the Euphrates spend a great part of their time on the roofs of their dwellings. They install themselves there in the morning, till they are driven away by the heat. As soon as the sun gets low in the heavens, they return to their post, and either pass the day on neighboring roofs while they bake, cook, wash, and dry the linen, or if they have slaves to attend to such menial occupations, they sew and embroider in the open air. They come down into the interior of the house during the hottest hours of the day. In most of the wealthy houses, the coolest room is one below the level of the courtyard, into which but little light can penetrate. It is paved with plaques of polished gypsum, which resemble our finest grey and white marble, and the walls are covered with a coat of delicate plastering, smooth to the touch and agreeable to the eye. This is watered several times during the day in hot weather, and the evaporation from it cools the air. The few ruined habitations which have as yet been explored seem to bear witness to a considerable similarity between the requirements and customs of ancient times and those of to-day. Like the modern women of Baghdad and Mosul, the Chaldean women of old preferred an existence in the open air, in spite of its publicity, to a seclusion within stuffy rooms or narrow courts. The heat of the sun, cold, rain, and illness obliged them at times to seek a refuge within four walls, but as soon as they could conveniently escape from them, they climbed up onto their roof to pass the greater part of their time there. Many families of the lower and middle classes owned the houses which they occupied. They constituted a patrimony which the owners made every effort to preserve intact through all reverses of fortune. The head of the family bequeathed it to his widow or his eldest son, or left it undivided to his heirs, in the assurance no doubt that one of them would buy up the rights of the others. The remainder of his goods, farms, gardens, corn-lands, slaves, furniture, and jewels were divided among the brothers or natural descendants, from the mouth to the gold, that is to say, from the moment of announcing the beginning of the business, to that when each one received his share. In order to invest this act with greater solemnity, it took place usually in the presence of a priest. Those interested repaired to the temple, to the gate of the god. They placed the whole of the inheritance in the hands of the chosen arbitrator, and demanded of him to divide it justly, or the eldest brother perhaps anticipated the apportionment, and the priest had merely to sanction the result, or settle the differences which might arise among the lawful recipients in the course of the operation. When this was accomplished, the legatees had to declare themselves satisfied, and when no further claims arose, they had to sign an agreement before the priestly arbitrator that they would henceforth refrain from all quarrelling on the subject, and that they would never make a complaint one against the other. By dint of these continual redistributions from one generation to another, the largest fortunes soon became dispersed, the individual shares became smaller and smaller, and scarcely sufficed to keep a family, so that the slightest reverse obliged the possessor to have recourse to usurers. The Chaldeans, like the Egyptians, were unacquainted with the use of money, but from the earliest times the employment of precious metals for the purpose of exchange was practised among them to an enormous extent. Though copper and gold were both used, silver was the principal medium in these transactions, and formed the standard value of all purchasable objects. It was never cut into flat rings or twists of wire, as was the case with the Egyptian tabnu. It was melted into small unstamped ingots, which were passed from hand to hand by weight, being tested in the scales at each transaction. To weigh was in the ordinary language the equivalent for payment in metal, 
whereas to measure denoted the payment was in grain. The ingots for exchange were, therefore, designated by the name of the weights to which they corresponded. The lowest unit was a shekel, weighing on an average nearly half an ounce, sixty shekels making a mina, and sixty minas a talent. It is a question whether the Chaldeans possessed in early times, as did the Assyrians of a later period, two kinds of shekels and minas, one heavy and the other light. Whether the loan were in metal, grain, or any other substance, the interest was very high. A very ancient law fixed it in certain cases at twelve drachmas per mina per annum, that is to say, at twenty-five per cent, and more recent texts show us that, when raised to twenty-five per cent, it did not appear to them abnormal. The commerce of the chief cities was almost entirely concentrated in the temples. The large quantities of metals and cereals constantly brought to the god, either as part of the fixed temple revenue, or as daily offerings, accumulated so rapidly that they would have overflown the storehouses had not a means been devised of utilizing them quickly. The priests treated them as articles of commerce and made a profit out of them. Every bargain necessitated the calling in of a public scribe. The bill, drawn up before witnesses on a clay tablet, enumerated the sums paid out, the names of the parties, the rate per cent, the date of repayment, and sometimes a penal clause in the event of fraud or insolvency. The tablet remained in the possession of the creditor until the debt had been completely discharged. The borrower often gave as a pledge either slaves, a field, or a house, or certain of his friends would pledge on his behalf their own personal fortune. At times he would pay by the labor of his own hands the interest which he would otherwise have been unable to meet, and the stipulation was previously made in the contract of the number of days of corvée, which he should periodically fulfill for his creditor. If, in spite of all this, the debtor was unable to procure the necessary funds to meet his engagements, the principal became augmented by a fixed sum, for instance one-third, and continued to increase at this rate until the total value of the amount reached that of the security. The slave, the field, or the house then ceased to belong to their former master, subject to a right of redemption, of which he was rarely able to avail himself for lack of means. End of section 35. Read by Professor Heather and by. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.